0: How about a word before the word? Test is this on? Jess? Jess, can you hear me back there? Okay. Doesn't sound very amplified. So I got a word this week. It's not part of the sermon. It's just a word. Are you interested? It's a word from the Lord, and it's two words in duration, and that's all. And it's this. Toughen up. Toughen up. This is for me, and maybe it's for you. It was toughen up, and then the explanation was, do you really think that you're going to live this dynamic Christian life, this effective kingdom life, and not experience any pushback, any hardship, any difficulties? any adversity. And what God's trying to tell his church is toughen up. To go through these days ahead, we're going to have to toughen up and stop wiping out at every little bit of adversity that comes our way. Satan is the master of bringing adversity, and if he knows we'll respond negatively to adversity, he'll just heap our lives with adversity. Toughen up, church. It was to me, and I'm giving it to you. Toughen up, Hub. Because I, you can't be wimpy in this thing. The Word. The written Word. A review from Acts 23, 12 through 22. The title was The Plot. Verses 12 through 15, it was the plot established. More than 40 men, zealots, Judaizers, terrorists with a cause... They took a vow not to eat until they killed Paul. They were going to ambush the Roman guard and kill Paul as they were bringing Paul back to court. All with the collusion, of course, and the approval of the high priest, Ananias. Verses 16 through 22, the plot was exposed. Paul's sister lived in Jerusalem with her son, Paul's nephew. He found out about the plot. He told Unc about it. Then he was taken to the Roman commander, and he told the commander about it. The plot was now completely exposed. That was last week. And we said last week, wow, it it sucks to be them. The 40, that is, because God had already decreed and promised Paul that he would get to Rome, and he would get there alive. They vowed not to eat or drink until they killed him, so guess what? They're going to either have to break their vow, or they're going to have to starve to death. You think any of them starved to death? Doubtful. Or they might want to consider repenting. There's a novel idea. Consider repenting and coming over to the right side. That would certainly be a good move on their part. I bet you God would forgive their breaking of the vow if they came over to the right side in repentance. What do you think? Are you guys out there? Is anybody out there? Okay, those are the facts of the review. Moving into today's lesson. But before we do, similar to how God did last week, it, seemed that God, it seems that God wants to address yet another concern with his people. A concern that he has with his people, believers, the church. Not just you and me, and not just this church, although you and me and this church, but the church. It's going to be presented. This issue that God wants to address is going to be presented as a point to ponder at the end of this message in the application. It's going to come from the review, but we need to move through today's passage before we get there. He's been doing a lot of this lately. God has been doing a lot of this lately, and he's preparing the church for mighty kingdom advancing move of his Holy Spirit. And sin... The things that he's been dealing with, with us on are sin. Sin must be dealt with or it's going to harm us and it's going to hinder his work. We wonder, man, why hasn't God answered these prayers? Why hasn't God moved? Why hasn't he done this or that? Could it be he needs to clean up his people's lives before he can do that? Well, we never gave that a thought, did we? We thought it was on God or maybe Satan was hindering or it's the world when actually it could be us, his people. We need to toughen up. Things go wrong and we wipe out. Satan will have a heyday with us. We'll move into today's lesson. Acts chapter 23, verses 23 through 35. Marie, will you come? We want Marie. We want Marie. We want Marie. Again, Ray, we love you. Thank you for reading last week. But we want Marie. That's why we got her up here this week. Uh, Would everybody stand, please, while we read the word? Thank you.
1: Then the commander called the two of his officers and ordered, get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesar at 9 o'clock tonight. Also, take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted uh, troops. Provide horses for Paul to ride and get safety to Governor Felix. Then he wrote this letter to the governor. From Claudius Decius to His Excellency Governor Felix Greed. The man was seized by some Jews, and they were about to kill him when I arrived with the troops when I learned that he was a Roman citizen. I moved him to safety, then I took him to their council to try the bias of accusations against him. I soon discovered... The charge was something regarding their religious law, certainly nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. But when I was informed of a plot to kill him, I immediately sent him to to you. I have told the accusers to bring their charges before you. So that night as ordered, the soldiers took Paul as far as Antipas, I don't know. <laughs> they returned to the fortress the next morning, when the mounted troops took him to Caesarea, when they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul and the letter to the governor Felix. He read it and then asked Paul, what, what promise he was from Cecilia? Paul answered, I will hear your case myself when your accusers arrive." the government, governor told him. Then the governor ordered him, Kept in position at the Herald's headquarters.
0: Thank you. Maybe seated. Let's get into this word. We may have to have another greeting time. Okay, the title of today's message is The Saga Continues, Part 3. But it's actually Part 4, because Part 3 could have been last week, only we entitled it The Plot. So it was Part 3 last week. This is actually The Saga Continues. What saga? What story? What narrative? Well, it's it's this narrative that began a few weeks ago with mob violence, riots, unrest against the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem, devolved into a secret attempt, assassinate him, the plot. He's already been rescued twice by the Roman guard. Today makes a third time the Roman guard saved his life, rescued him. So we want to take a look at this passage. We want to exegete it. We want to give the facts of the passage. We want to make some commentary. Then we want to have application. So the verse, then the commander called two of his officers and ordered, Get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. Also take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops. Provide horses for Paul to ride. Get him safely to Governor Felix. So let's just do some quick math. 200 soldiers plus... Two hundred spearmen plus seventy mounted cavalry. Is that right? So that's four hundred and seventy. The point I'm trying to draw out here and make is 470 well-armed, well-trained, fully-equipped military against 40 terrorists, most likely on foot, armed with knives and clubs. Who do you think is going to win that battle? Who do you think is going to win that fight? So can I say it again? sucks to be them. If they don't get totally whooped in this battle, they're going to starve to death because Paul is going to get to Rome safely and he's going to get there alive. Don't mess with God. You guys here in the front pew that are listening, that are, you know, sitting up nice and straight and paying attention. Don't mess with God because God always wins. Don't think you can stand against God. Will they never learn? God always wins. Will Satan never learn? He will learn someday when it's too late. But his anger and his rage will not allow him to see what is what is truth. And he will try to the very end to overcome God. In his, in his rage, arrogant, prideful mind, he still thinks he can overcome God. Like they did. Yeah, I know. We don't have it again. Oh, I can't. I need my notes. <laughs> I'm not an extemporaneous pastor. Preacher. If this goes off again, Ron, we're going to control it from the back. Some of these Asian zealots that are now in Jerusalem plotting to kill Paul, they've been pursuing him since his first missionary journey years ago. God continually frustrated their plans. I want to give us a verse in Psalms that I use in my prayers I want you guys to at least think about. When you're praying as it relates to tearing down the enemy's strongholds, which we need to be praying like that, You know, we have a gentle shepherd and we pray intercessory prayers and we ask God to bless people and save people and and this and that. That's well and good and needs to be done. But we also have a warrior king and whether we like it or not, we're in a battle. And we have to be praying some what the Bible calls imprecatory praying. There are imprecatory, another long theological words, there are imprecatory psalms where the prayers are simply this. Get them, God. Their enemies, they stand against you, short of repentance, get them. Tear that enemy down, remove those who won't follow you, bring about your fool will, raise up righteous leaders, tear down unrighteous leaders. That also is a very valid way to pray, and that's one of the ways God is calling us to pray today. You know, the first time the world saw Jesus, they saw a gentle shepherd, a suffering servant. The next time the world sees Jesus, they're going to see a great, mighty warrior king. He's not coming back as a general shepherd, suffering servant. He's coming back as a victorious warrior king. And in these last days where the enemy has come in like a flood, God's trying to raise up a church that will stand against the enemy and pray the way I just said, that we can move the kingdom forward. Precious souls hang into balance. We're told to pray for our leaders, but we're not told to bless ungodly leaders. All we're told to do is pray for leaders. If we're praying for leaders that are obviously standing against Christ and antichrist, and we're praying and asking God to bless them and bless their efforts, we're partakers of their evil deeds. God is calling the church to rise up. He's looking for men of Issachar who understand the times and know what God's doing and get on board with God. He's raising up a mighty army in these days. We still know him as gentle shepherd. We still know him as suffering servant. We present him to those who need to be saved as a gentle shepherd, forgiving, loving, merciful. But there's also a time where we go to war in prayer. Amen? Ah, we're in war this morning. Ron, do you want to take it over from the back? It's not on here. Oh, you're already running it from the back. All right, well, then I have to adjust something here. Okay, so you have it from the back. I want to go to the next slide. That might not be the next slide. Okay. So in any event, go back. God said, this is is Acts 23, 23 and 24. God said that Paul was, oh, did I even tell you how to pray? I lost my train of thought when I got wound up there. The verse in Psalms says, when, when, the guy, when the psalmist prayed, he prayed, God, frustrate their plans. God, thwart their schemes. What a way to pray. Evil, these men were plotting to kill Paul. Nobody knew about it except God did, and God revealed it. He allowed uh, Paul's nephew to hear about it. So evil today is, is plotting schemes and plans to destroy and whether you want to believe it or not, because we live such blessed lives in America, the enemy is on a tear to destroy this country. In many ways, destroying the economy will destroy this country. Um, unlimited spending will destroy this country. But primarily what will destroy the country is if he can take out Christianity. Christianity. In order to bring down a nation, you got to take the good out of that nation and then build it back up on your evil foundation. So religion, the, the enemy is after religion, and he wants to tear down and remove religion from this country, especially guess who? Christians, the church. Frustrate his plans. He lays his plans in secret. We don't know what they are, but you do. Frustrate all the enemy's plans to destroy this nation, Lord. Thwart all the enemy's schemes to destroy this nation. And then, as God begins to show you specifics, pray specifically in that way. Frustrate their plans to destroy the economy. Thwart their schemes for unlimited spending. Anything that's going to destroy our nation, thwart their schemes, frustrate their plans. That's not just my opinion. I forget what psalm that's in, but I came across that in the psalms, and I've added that to my praying as God leads me. So back to this text. These guys were trying to kill Paul, but God had said Paul wasn't going to be killed. Paul had promised, he prophesied, he decreed to Paul that he would get to Rome alive. He needs to witness and testify and tell others about Jesus in Rome. That's the plan. And although it hasn't happened yet, God will make sure it happens. Amen to that? All right, for us. Listening? What has God prophesied? What has God promised or told you? He's going to do, and it hasn't yet happened. A word God has somehow, through some means, given you. Scripture that's been spoken prophetically over you. Or a promise from the scriptures that you know God gave you. I know some of you are still waiting. You're still waiting for God to come through on that promise, on that prophetic word, on that prophecy. I want you to know, if God said it will happen, it will happen. He will do it. Don't give up. Don't give in. Hold steadfastly to that word. Wait for it. Now the next slide, Ron. Habakkuk 2-3. For the vision is yet for the appointed future time. It hurries towards the goal of fulfillment. It will not fail. Even though it delays, wait patiently for it, because it will certainly come. It will not delay. The vision, or you could say the prophetic word, the revelation, the promise from God, will happen. There may be twists and turns in the path. Remember? Toughen up, church. When it doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to and the way you thought it would, push on. Press on. Don't give up. Don't give in. Hey, I'm speaking that to myself. You know what we're missing in the church? Mental toughness. We still let our emotions control us. And we still allow our thoughts to control us instead of controlling our thoughts. I have had to battle that all week because I was preaching this sermon. My thoughts wanted to control me, and I had to take my thoughts under control. And it's possible. It ain't easy. But it's possible. You control who you are and you control who you think or how you think. And we've got to get to that place where Satan, again, is going to have a heyday with us. So there may be twists and turns in the road since you received a prophetic word and you thought it was going to happen this way. And it didn't. Sometimes exactly the opposite happens. Is there an amen to that? Exactly the opposite of what you thought God was going to do begins to happen. But guaranteed, if it was God that said it, if God said it will happen, it will happen. God told Paul he was going to get to Rome. He didn't know he was going to go through mob violence, unrest, terrorism, imprisonment, sneaking out at night, guarded by 470 men. But he knew God said he was going to get to Rome alive. Here's a biblical principle for us. Between the time the word is given, whenever that is, whenever that was, and the time the word is fully accomplished, there's often a a period of time where things seem exactly the opposite of the word given. Why do you think God would allow that? Humble is probably a good one. Prepare us is a good one. Our character. character, To build especially what aspect of our character? Perseverance. Perseverance. These are all good answers. It's not what I have in mind, but Trust. trust, faith. It's a faith builder. When God gives you a word and you say, I believe it and I embrace it, then he lets all hell break loose and it looks exactly the opposite. Are you still going to believe that word and press on? This principle is illustrated all through the Bible. Too many times to mention. One is right here, God's prophetic word and promise to Paul. Right now, it looks anything like he's going to get to Rome, although it's starting to some light at the end of the tunnel. Paul doesn't know it yet, but there's a two year imprisonment, attempted bribes, court hearings, fierce storms, shipwreck, floating in the Mediterranean for two days, and more before he ever actually gets to room, Did you hear that? He doesn't know it, thank God. God doesn't show us the details. Why would God even do this? And we answered that. There's another reason, too, that wasn't quite mentioned. To prepare us was mentioned, but we don't understand that when God says he's going to do something, he then has to orchestrate everything that goes into that being fulfilled. And we think, well, God could just do it like that. And he could. He's powerful enough. But there are forces that stand against. There's Satan and his demonic forces. They're not really that much for God, but God allows them to work. You know what really stands against God's will? Human free will. You say, why hasn't God done that? Because there's humans standing in the way, maybe you. God's saying, I want to do this, but we've got to clean up this sin in your life before I can. So God gives a word, and we're like, tomorrow, yes, no difficulty, it's going to be great. And God said, Man, you got two years of shipwreck and court trials, and, but you're going to get there. I'm going to do it. Personal illustration I thought shortly after I was saved, way back, 1980. I thought I had a word that we, Deb and I, would be going into the ministry. Overseas ministry, missionaries to be exact. It took 15 years to happen. And during those 15 years, it seemed anything but like we would go into ministry. I had actually given up. I had totally thought I misheard God. Never did get a word for ministry, and I was just throwing myself into whatever I was doing for 15 years. And then it happened. And when it did happen, it happened in a way that we could never have figured out. It was a call to ministry after all, but it wasn't missionaries. It wasn't mission ministry. It was to be church planters and pastoral ministry in Columbia, But it took 15 years from when God gave a word that we would be in ministry for it to happen. And during that time, it looked anything but like we would ever be in ministry. Here's another principle. Prophetic words are more about the revelation of God's heart and mind to us than they are about the details of the word. Paul, you're going to get to Rome alive. All right. Trouble's finally over. <laughs> no, God revealed his heart and his mind to Paul, but he didn't give him any of the details. Conveniently. Hub, you're going to be in ministry. I remember when, I first, when we first got saved and I went in and told the assistant pastor at the Elizabethtown Church. I worked with him. I told him I had gotten saved. January 16th, 1980. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, you're going to be preaching to me someday. Well, if you would have known me at that time, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. And I hadn't had any word from the Lord on ministry yet. But he said, you're going to be preaching to me someday. Fast forward 15 years, we become church planters. One of our assignments is that we have to go around to churches in the eastern Pennsylvania district and sell our case for planting a church in Columbia. And guess where one of the churches was that we were assigned his church, and he was sitting in the pews, and I was preaching the message. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Man, that should take the fear and the worry and the anxiety out of so many things for us. It's not easy, but it's true. Be encouraged. Here's another principle for us, and there's a lot of this going on today, and we have to be very, very careful Don't judge a prophet or a prophetic word because some of the details weren't exact. Listen for God's heart and his mind in the prophecy, the prophecies in the word. Many prophets have risen today and are speaking today. God has restored, whether we like it or not, God has restored the prophetic ministry to the church. He said he was going to do that. He's going to restore the healing ministry to the church. He's going to do that. The five-fold gospel, the pastors and evangelists and apostles and teachers and uh, the other one. (laughs) Five of them. He's going to restore the the five-fold ministry. He's going to restore the fullness of the Holy Spirit to the church. And not just to certain groups, but to the rank-and-file church. God is going to do that. One of the areas he has begun is in the area of the prophetic So you're hearing prophetic voices all over the place. You're like, well, this guy said that, and this guy said that. Don't get involved in the details. But if you listen, by and large, not that there aren't any false prophets out there, but by and large, their message is uniform if you look for the heart and mind of God in it. God is saying the same thing through all these different prophets. Don't begin to judge them because some of the details aren't exact. Thank you. Thank you. Listen objectively. Although sometimes they do differ in their details. And sometimes the exact details don't come true exactly. We look to Agabus in Acts and we say, now there was a true prophet. Oh, wait a minute. Go back and look at his prophecies. The heart and mind of God that he prophesied came true. Some of the details did not. Back to the text, verses 31 and 32. So that night, as ordered, the soldiers took Paul as far as Antipatris. They returned to the fortress the next morning while the mounted troops, the cavalry, here comes the cavalry, took him on to Caesarea. God got Paul safely to Caesarea. About 60, 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's on the Mediterranean coast. It's a harbor. It's actually a port of Jerusalem. They got him there safely. They firmly secured him in a white-collar prison there, and now Paul is waiting to hear from the to hear have his hearing with the governor. There's another section of this passage that deals with a letter that the commander wrote to the governor. Then he, the Roman commander, wrote this letter to the governor, from Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. So we don't really we're not really going to cover too much in the letter. It's mostly just the commander explaining the situation to Felix that we already know about. Just to put it in perspective, though, it would be like Columbia Mayor Lutz writing a letter to Governor Wolf in Harrisburg and saying, I'm sending this case on to you. This matter needs to be decided at a higher level. It's it's really not our jurisdiction. It's it's above our pay grade. So we're pressing, pressing him on to you, passing him on to you. Let's summarize the story quickly. Paul's finally out of Jerusalem. He's 65 miles away from the mob. Although they are going to come up there now because they have to bring their accusations against him. But for now, he's 65 miles away from the mob. Breathe a sigh of relief. He's out of harm's way for now. And he's at least on his way to Rome. For the application today, it's going to come more from the review from last week's passage than this week's passage, but like last week, it's just going to be indirectly related. I think God's using these historical narratives in Acts to get us to issues that he wants to address. So we are going to make a leap. It is going to be a bit of a stretch, but I believe what we're going to say from here on out is what God wants to address us, the issue God wants to address with us. Let's see if we can make that leap. Let's see if we can make that stretch. It's going to be a very practical application for believers. It's related to everyday Christian living. And it comes from this group of 40, the terrorists. They're evil. They're deceitful. They're conniving nature. And the plot that they were hatching to kill Paul. They were abusive. They lied. They fabricated stories. They, They spoke harshly. They disrespected the authorities and so on. From that is what we're going to gain. uh, grab our application. Point to ponder. God hates all that kind of stuff that I just mentioned. God hates treachery. God hates deceitfulness. God hates evil plotting. God hates secret sin. God hates lying. God hates malice, which is harboring ill feelings in our hearts towards others. The list could go on and on. And actually, in a moment, it will go on. And it's going to get down to where we may be squirming a little bit and saying, ouch. See, things of that nature, they're of the nature of Satan and his demons. Those things and more that we're going to mention, they're from the kingdom of darkness. God forbids that of his people. We are to display the nature of Christ. Christlikeness. We're be people of the kingdom, people of light, not people of darkness. Paul told us in one of his letters, don't associate with the deeds of darkness all this stuff. We're not of the kingdom of darkness. We're of the kingdom of light. Those things we mentioned on the screen, they're not of a Christ-like nature. So, an objection may be raised. Are you still with me? Yes, I'm here. Okay. An objection may, may be raised among God's people. And this is the objection. Yeah, but they were literally trying to kill Paul. Pastor, how can there be any parallel application for us in this? We would never plot to actually kill someone. That's murder. We know murder's wrong. We know better. We would never murder someone, right? Right? Church? (laughs) Right? We know better. Hmm. Okay. That's good. So we know better that we would never murder someone, but do we know this? You have heard it said to the men of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. And in those days, it was capital punishment. But I say to you that everyone who continues to be angry with his brother or sister, or harbors malice against him or her, shall be guilty before the court. And whoever speaks contemptuously and insultingly to his brother shall be guilty before the court. Wow. Wait, what... What exactly is that saying? I sense an ouch moment coming here. The Old Testament law forbids God's people from committing actual murder. So, like us, most of them have thought they were okay. But then comes Jesus. He always throws a wrench in the gears, right? Makes us uncomfortable. Then comes Jesus and he bursts the self righteous bubble. And he explains to them and expounds to them on the heart of God behind the law that says thou shalt not murder. Anger towards a brother is murder. Holding on to offense or offending another. Holding a grudge, gossiping, being critical, judgmental, cynical, sarcastic, backbiting, talking negatively about folks, harboring feelings of malice, Within here, envy, jealous, same plane as murder. As if that's not enough. Then he says, whoever speaks contemptuously or insultingly about a brother or a sister, which means grumbling, complaining, speaking scornfully, mocking, disdainfully, condescendingly. Derisively, disrespectfully, disgracefully, nastily, rudely, impolitely. All those words are wrapped up in the two Jesus used contemptuously and insultingly. And this is the this is the ouch of the ouches. God takes this matter very seriously. We do not. In God's eyes, those things we just recited are sin. Think about that. Sin that's on the same level as actual murder in God's eyes. As if we had actually committed the act of murder on the person that we're talking about. That's why the punishment is listed as the same. You murder somebody, actually murder them, you're going to be brought before the court. Capital punishment. You do all these things, Jesus said, you're going to be brought before the court. It's the same price to be paid because in God's eyes, the sin is the same level of sin. It's not in ours. We never really murdered anybody, but, so we're okay. But we'll go home and roast somebody around the table after, at lunch. Even though these things are only thoughts, words, and attitudes, not the actual act itself of murder in God's eyes, anyone who is guilty of these things is guilty of murder. What do you think? Ouch, right? Time to tighten up the ship, church. There may be some repentance necessary on our parts before we get through this message. Unfortunately, we routinely talk negative about others, and we take it lightly. God takes it very seriously. We do not. But God is intent on informing his church that he takes these things very seriously. And all of these things that we, he has been bringing out through these narratives in Acts, Don't, it's better not to vow than to vow and break it. My gosh, we do that every day. We're to be the victors in our circumstances, not the victims and wipe out. We're wiping out every day. No way do we see that as sin. It is, though, because God said don't. Yeah, but what I said about them that was true. You know, it doesn't really matter if it's true, if it didn't have to be, didn't have to be said. There is a time to tell truth. If somebody's gonna be harmed. But other than that, spreading this stuff about other people, huge no no. God takes it very seriously. Thankful that God is so merciful, or we'd all be in big trouble. But his mercy's beginning to wear just a little thin for our sakes. He loves us so much. He has to deal with this stuff. And for the work that he wants to do, if he's going to use us, he has to deal with this stuff. He's looking for some clean lives in these days ahead. It doesn't mean you're sinlessly perfect, Isaiah. You don't have to be sinlessly perfect. But when you sin, make sure you confess it and tell him you sinned, and you're sorry for it. And then he'll forgive and cleanse, and you're back on track. It's those who hide their sin, who take their sin lightly, who think they can get away with it. That's who God's going to be after in these days ahead. And it's going to get more, more and more tough for us because God is going to slowly allow our sin to be exposed, hoping that we'll deal with it when we see it. Whoa. <laughs> All right. Let's get through the rest of this real quick. We'll just move right down in here. There's a reason why Jesus is saying this about speaking negatively. Why is that such a big deal? We do it all the time. Doesn't James say the last thing we control in our body is our tongues? Yeah, he does. That doesn't make it right. Why is this such a big deal, speaking negatively? I want to show you from Scripture. Proverbs 15:4. Gentle words are a tree of life. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Negativity, negative words... Whether you know it or not, they crush the life out of a person. It's hard to be around a negative person. You just feel like this all the time. Like it's just a wet blanket. You just want to get away from that because it's crushing your spirit. Gentle words build up. They bring life. You want to be around people who don't speak negatively. When we speak negatively about or to one another, or even just that negative in general, according to scriptures, we are literally crushing the life out of others. That's why Jesus likened it to murder. Negative words poison the atmosphere. Words are so powerful. Another proverb, the tongue can bring life or death. We probably know that as life and death are in the power of the tongue. Words are so powerful. Listen, this is a dramatic, uh, on the dramatic end of the scale, but a person can be so verbally abused, so verbally beaten down with no physical action, that they will take their own life. Words can kill. Karen Carpenter, you may have known her. She's one of my favorite singers. She and her brother, Richard, she died of anorexia. And if you know the story, I think it was her uncle or or somebody, either a reporter wrote about her. Yeah, a reporter wrote about her and called her in the article, Richard's chubby sister. Words. Richard's chubby sister led to anorexia, led to her premature death. Words can kill. Scripture is very clear about that. Be very careful what we speak. And you heard the old adage, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's a good starting place. All kinds of psychological disorders, all kinds of conditions, psychological conditions can be traced to verbal abuse. Intentional or unintentional. The Bible actually likens negative words spoken to or about someone at the level of curses being put on them. I was labeled by my first grade teacher, you're going to be the class clown, you're always going to be in trouble. And guess what? I was the class clown and I was always in trouble. I spent more time in the cloakroom than the classroom. I thought of myself like that. Seriously. Yes, how we speak as Christians, especially towards or about one another, is kind of a big deal. It's significant, very significant in God's eyes. Scripture has a ton to say about it. That's for a different sermon. I want to close with this point to ponder, some practical verses on the positive side. Here we go. Point to ponder, as believers, we must guard ourselves from speaking negatively toward or about others. It is hard. Your natural inclination is to talk negatively about someone. Try just one day, try, I'm not going to say one negative word today, and you'll see how hard it is. (laughs) Everything I speak is going to be positive today. If you make it through a day, let me know. Colossians 4, 6, let your conversation be gracious and attractive Our words are to be full of grace. They're to attract people. Negative words don't attract. Negativity drives people away. They don't want to be around us. And if they think we reflect our Lord, they're not going to want to be around him. Ephesians 4.29. My son Nathan's favorite verse. Nathan had a mouth on him. And whenever he used that mouth, he had to write this 50 times, 100 times. It's the one verse he knows in Scripture by heart do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Unwholesome talk, it's an interesting word. The word unwholesome is a word that has to do with causing rot, (laughs) causing rot, causing decay, destroying. That's what our negative words do to people speaking to them or even about them. Remember unseen eyes? You say, but yeah, they never heard me say that, but there were ears that heard that. Wholesome words, words that build up and benefit from the kingdom of light. When we're positive, we speak positive things. We build others, we build ourselves up. One final verse, Philippians. Oh, man, grab your seat. Do all things without grumbling, fault-finding, or complaining. I think we get the gist, right? <laughs> Tiffany, if you'll come. And we'll stand. Tiffany's going to pray. I know it went rather long, Sonny. Whatever you got planned for the band is what we'll do. Just wait till people are settled, least amount of distractions as possible, and then pray.
2: Father, I thank you so much for your presence here with us today. Thank you for your word that says, no matter how we feel, your presence is here with us today. Lord, I ask that um, as we worship, that you would make us, make our spirits increasingly aware of your presence within us and around us. Mm -hmm. And I ask that you would shine the light into our lives to reveal these deep places of sin in our lives, that you can deal with them, and that we can come out uh, prepared for the work that you've given us. As Pastor Hub was preaching, I had a picture, ironically, of a person getting their shoes on, which is ironic, because I don't wear shoes. Um, And um, I was thinking, if someone was getting ready to run, A runner was getting ready to run and they just threw some shoes on didn't tie the laces Um, you know it wouldn't be super effective they need to tighten and pull each lace um, and tie it just perfectly so that it's on their foot well they don't need to worry about it flying off and I just sense that that's what the Lord is doing wanting to do in us to tighten each lace and to prepare us to run forth with the gospel for his glory. And so, Father, give us softened hearts to hear and to respond to the conviction from your Holy Spirit of the sin in our lives and um, grant us willing spirits amen. to obey you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.